today on The Winning Walk with Dr. Ed Young. We had the idea he wanted a God that was like a superman who was all-powerful, omnipotent, but had the brain of a peanut. In other words, he had the idea, I'm smarter than God. You have the idea, I'm smarter than God. Certainly God wants to bring my boyfriend back again. That's obvious. Certainly God wants to heal my daughter. Certainly God wants to get me into school. Certainly God wants to help me out. We, we just, you know, we use God. Jesus says, Father, forgive them for they're ignorant. The truth is, even the most familiar Bible stories have the power to surprise you. Welcome to The Winning Walk with Dr. Ed Young. Today, Dr. Young begins his message, Words of Forgiveness, and brings you some new insight into the crucifixion story. Stay with us to hear more on The Winning Walk with Dr. Ed Young. Now, here's Dr. Ed Young with today's message, Words of Forgiveness. We've been studying since August the life of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We realize that Jesus was Emmanuel, and really the life of Jesus is just the autobiography of God in time and space. And so we have walked through this carefully with the idea that if we get this, we've got the whole spectrum of God's revelation to man, and that's gigantic. And now we come to the last 24 hours in the life of Jesus, 24 hours. And we've walked through all the passages here. We had the experience of the upper room, remember? And they left and they went out the north gate of Jerusalem. They walked down through the Kidron Valley. The Kidron had been up at this time of the year, more water than usual. They made their way across. They ascended in the Mount of Olives. And they went into Gethsemane. We talked about in Gethsemane how Jesus was grappling with the will of God in the sense it wasn't the death on the cross. That was disgraceful and painful enough, but it was that cup. Remember, let this cup pass from me, and that cup was full of hell. And that's what Jesus turned away from. And then finally we see he asked for those three his three right-hand guys to stay awake while he was going through this painful, emotional grappling, sweat like blood, remember? But they went to sleep. No other time in his life did he need physical companionship, but now when he needed it, they went to sleep three different times. They were asleep. Jesus was abandoned in the garden. And then when he went out, here comes the soldiers led by Judas. One of the 12 spent three and a half years with Jesus, and now he gives him that infamous kiss on the cheek. Hey, oh, Rabbi, 
now he's betrayed. You ever been abandoned? Anybody feel abandoned today? Anybody feel betrayed today? We've been abandoned. We've been betrayed. But then Jesus was arrested and taken, and the trial began, and there around the fire, we studied how Simon Peter rejected him. You've been rejected? With profanity, he rejected him. With profanity. I don't know that. Rejected. And now we look at the trial. The trial that takes place before Jesus was put on that cross. Now, we say, Jesus died for my sins. I've asked the question, why? Well, what do you believe? Oh, Jesus died for my sins. Why did he have to die for your sins? Why did he have to die for my sins? Can you answer that question? You see, we have to go back with a presupposition that's before the entire Bible. That is, we are dealing with a holy God, ladies and gentlemen. Have to understand that we are dealing with a God that is holy. You don't just casually go before a holy God. Jesus died for your sins and my sins so we can go before a holy God. We're clothed with the righteousness of Jesus. That's the only way anybody gets to God. That's the reason nobody has really prayed unless they pray in Jesus' name. Do you get that? You hear prayer, somebody has an eloquent prayer, and they say amen. They didn't get through unless we go through Jesus. That's the only way we can do business with the Holy God. The only way Holy God can do business with you and me. That's the framework of where we are. And therefore, we go to the cross, the question is answered magnificently and clearly in the seven last words spoken by Jesus. Seven last phrases. We will study two of those words today. We'll look at the rest in the weeks that are coming. Because as we study the words of Jesus from the cross, we understand there better than perhaps any other place in the Bible, the heart of God. You know how God operates, what God's heart is? We will come face to face with that with great clarity as we study the seven last words of Jesus. Now, we're going to look at some other scripture, but primarily we're going to look at this scripture that I will read. Luke chapter 23, verse 33 through 34. Listen carefully. Two of the last words are right here. When they came to the place called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on the right, the other on the left. And Jesus was saying, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. First word, first word of the seven. And they cast lots, dividing up his garments among themselves. And the people stood by looking on. Even the rulers were sneering at him, saying, he saved others. Let him save himself. If this is the Christ, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up to him, offering him sour wine, saying, if you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. 
Now there was also an inscription above him, this is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanging there was hurling abuse at him, saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal answered and rebuked him, saying, do you not even fear God? Since you are under the same sentence of condemnation, and we indeed are suffering justly, for we are receiving what we deserve for our deeds. But this man, this Jesus, has done nothing wrong. And he was saying, Jesus, remember me when you come in your kingdom. This is the second word, last phrase of Jesus on the cross. And Jesus said to him, truly, remember the word truly? That's like amen, remember? Truly, truly, amen, amen. Truly I say to you, today you shall be with me in paradise. Our Heavenly Father, speak to us clearly through your book as we kneel in your presence and seek your face and seek insight into how we should then live. We love you, Lord. May our steps in our lives give proof to our confession. Is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. You read an account of the last 24 hours life of Jesus. You see a lot of shocking things. If you read it carefully and read it in a fresh way as if you've never read it before, you're shocked. And one thing shocked me the first part of last week. I saw something I'd never seen before. And it just, I couldn't believe it. It's just a shocking thing there in the scripture. And you find it in the last part of Luke chapter 22. We know that Jesus was taken. He was arrested. He was taken to Caiaphas' house. Caiaphas and Annas were sort of co-high priests. Uh, Caiaphas was Annas' son-in-law. And so he spent the darkness there of that last 24 hours. And then when the sun came up, the Bible tells us, at the beginning of the day, they took Jesus before the Sanhedrin. It says, council. But it's the Supreme Court. It's like the Supreme Court is in session. There were 72 members of the Sanhedrin. And the Jews love fancy dress. I mean, you can see the, the robes they had on, the sashes they had on, the phylacteries, all the colorful outfits and the Pharisees and the Sadducees and maybe even the Essenes and the Herodians and, and priests and all the religious people came. And here was the Supreme Court early in the morning, called into session. And they take Jesus there in this mock trial. Oh, so many legal, legal things, legal precedents were broken. And they question him, and finally Jesus answers. When they say, are you the Christ? Are you the Son of God? He said, yes, I am. Bang! By the way, Right there, right there, 
you could build a case that on that phrase, a transition is made from the old covenant to the new covenant, even prior to Calvary, right at that moment, because everything changed. He was professing to be divine, and in their eyes, this was blasphemy. In other words, if someone claimed to be divine, they were blaspheming, cursing the Almighty, and they said, he has said it with his own lips. We have all the evidence we need. And then the Supreme Court made that judgment that he should be executed, but the Jews had a problem. They could not execute anyone under Roman law without Roman permission. They could do a lot of things. Jesus had already been beaten. He'd already been uh, laughed at. They'd already played the who hit you game. You know that game? They blindfold him and one would hit him, another would hit him. They'd say, who hit you? Bang, bang. Which one of us hit you? He'd been through that. And now you read a shocking verse. I want you to listen to this. Then I'm going to question you. We've got some prominent scholars here. I want you to look the last part of verse 22. It says, for we have heard it from his own mouth. Look at the first verse of verse 23. Then the whole body of them got up and brought him before Pilate. Now, follow me. This was so shocking. The Supreme Court, with all their regalia, the whole bunch, 71, got up and went with Jesus as they took him to another place before Pilate. I had never seen that before last Monday in my life. I've never seen that in anything. Has anybody ever noticed that before? Anybody here, would you lift your hand? We got honest people. I mean, that's shocking to me. Can you imagine? Here is Pilate, you know, running everything for the Roman government, and here the whole Supreme Court comes up as the sun comes up and says, here's a guy. Shocking, isn't it? Shocking. How how overwhelming, How, how indicting, how overpowerful. And then we see Pilate was shocked. Pilate examined him, questioned him a little bit. He said, I see no fault in this man. And, but Jesus said he's from Galilee, and Pilate said, hey, I know how to get off the hook. See, he's a politician. <laughs> he knew how to get off the hook. He said, you know, Galilee, Herod's in charge of that. And Herod's in town for the Passover. Take him to Herod. He, he'll handle this case. He won't take the responsibility. He goes before Herod, Herod running Galilee. Herod said, you know, I've been wanting to meet you. I've heard about you. Man, all the signs you've done, all the supernatural events, your reputation, what you have said. He said, I've been wanting to meet you. I look forward to this. He said, now, show me something. You know, do a triple flip in the air, fly out the window. You know, put on a little show. There's no business like I mean, that's what Herod wanted. Entertain me. You're a sorcerer. I know that. I've heard about you. I've been wanting to meet you. Jesus didn't say a word. By the way, sometimes the best defense we have is to be silent. I read about a man who said he could be silent in seven different languages. So he didn't say a word, and Herod put an old purple robe on, he laughed at him, mocked him, and sent him back to Pilate and said, hey, this is a 
This is one of those religious kooks. <laughs> we have him popping up every now and then. Now he's back in Herod's court. From Herod's court to Pilate's court, Pilate to Herod, Herod to Pilate. Now Pilate's got a problem. Pilate said, well, let me see here. I, his wife had had some dreams along here. She said, man, this guy is something special. Don't get involved. Ooh, now Pilate's got pressure from home. He's got the Jews wanting to kill him. He knows he's an innocent man. And, yo, I got an idea. He said, every time at the Passover we let one of the prisoners go free, we've got this, this murderer, this scum, this Barabbas here. Man, everybody hates him. He's a revolutionary. And I'm going to say, I'll set Barabbas or Jesus free. And they'll set Jesus free, but to his Amazement. He was shot. They said, give us Barabbas. How about Jesus? Crucify him. Cruce, kill him. Crucify him. Put him on the cross. Boy, Pilate's back on the hook again, isn't he? What in the world is he going to do? You know, he washes his hands. We know the story. And then Pilate says, look, let me just punish him. And so they whipped him and they beat him. And finally he said, behold, your king. Behold the man. Totally beaten. Almost beyond recognition, by the way, if you read the prophecy in Isaiah 42. So anytime you see these movies, you say, oh, it's so heinous, it's so horrible. Oh, man, when they beat him and they put him on the cross, my goodness, it's overdone. Not in a million years is it overdone. So he holds him up and said, hey, isn't that enough? Let him go. I've beaten him. Look at him. You can't even recognize him. And then the religious leader says, if you let him go, you are no friend of Caesar. Ooh. And then some of them said, we have no king but Caesar. Some of the Pharisees. What hypocrisy. Now we see Pilate is blackmailed. So what's that all about? If you read secular history, Celsus, who writes about it as a secular historian, he says when Pilate first came to authority in Israel, in Palestine, by the way, the Romans held the court in Caesarea by the sea, not in Jerusalem. That was their citadel. When Pilate first came, he brought the soldiers, and they had on their shields, all the Roman soldiers, a little bronze, a little image of Caesar. And the Jews said, oh, don't bring that here. We do not believe in brazen images. Don't make any images, anything but God. And the other Roman rulers who'd come, they would adhere to the traditions of the Jews to try to make peace. But Pilate said, oh, no, 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 no. I'm leaving that image of Caesar on the shield of my soldiers. And the Jews had a revolt that lasted for six days. In Caesarea, hundreds of them saying, hey, Take those graven images off your shields. Pilate says, I am not going to do it. And finally, Pilate says, I'm going to start killing all of you if you don't take off. If you, I'm going to kill all of you if you don't quit all this revolt. I'm leaving the brazen image of Caesar on the shield of all of my soldiers. And you know what the Jews did? His story. They just bowed down and said, start cutting off our heads. And hundreds, hundreds, hundreds of them bowed down. Now Pilate had a problem. He said, man, if I start killing all these Jews, bang, 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 
He said, word will get back to Caesar, and they'll say, Pilate can't keep order in the Middle East. You see, the problem in the Middle East is not a brand new thing, ladies and gentlemen. And so Pilate acquiesced to the people and took the brazen images off the shield of all his soldiers. See, and this is why we see here he was blackmailed. See what's happening? He was absolutely blackmailed. And he said, well, here he is. I turn him over to you. Crucify him. Pilate was shocked. You can be sure he had to give in. Shocked that he was blackmailed by the religious leaders of Israel. So he was shocked. Not only was he shocked, another person was shocked in the story, Simon of Cyrene. Simon was there. He was from Libya. He was an African. He was there for the Passover. He was in the crowd. And as Jesus was carrying the cross, Jesus stumbled. Physically, he was exhausted. He was beaten. He couldn't carry the cross. And so the Roman soldiers turned over and said, hey, 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 you, Simon, (laughs) you, 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 come carry the cross. And Simon said, oh, no, wait a minute. I'm just here. I'm just an observer. Nothing going on. Crucifixion is always fun to watch. No, no, Simon, you come here and carry the cross. Simon was shocked, was he not? He became an unwilling volunteer to carry the cross of Jesus. And so there we have Jesus walking, Simon carrying the cross. What a powerful symbol. What happened to Simon? Mark tells us that Simon had two sons, Alexander and Rufus. And we meet them later in That is in Mark 15, and in Romans 16, we meet Rufus in Rome, and Paul says, Rufus' mother was like a mother to me. That would be Simon of Cyrene's wife. So we have some biblical evidence that Simon became a Christian as he carried that cross. But he was shocked that he had to. Pilate was shocked. Simon was shocked. I'll tell you, he was really shocked. The crowd around the cross. All those who were there, the Roman soldiers who were crucifying Jesus, those watchers, the family. And Jesus, as they got the cross in place, he looked out and said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He said, Father, forgive all of these. Forgive them, for they are ignorant. Ignorant. That's something. Who is the them? By the way, in the Greek, it says that Jesus said this many times, Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them. Father, forgive He said it many times. Father, forgive the soldiers. Father, forgive these religious leaders. Father, forgive those who are watching. Father, forgive, forgive those in the 21st century. You and I are there. Were you there when they crucified our Lord? Absolutely we were there. He was asking and providing for your forgiveness and for mine. Yeah. Father, forgive them. What a prayer. What a, what a shocking prayer that he offered at that moment as he was dying there on the cross. Father, forgive them. Prayers are something. I read this week a cute little story about a, a little, little guy, five years old, he had a rough day with his mom. It seemed like he was in trouble all day long. He had so many timeouts, the whole day was almost one timeout. 
And the mom took the big spoon and discipline. I mean, they had a rough day. And finally, a little five-year-old put to bed, and he was saying his prayers, and he prayed for his father, his sister, his two brothers. He prayed for everybody he knew at school. He prayed for the trees and the birds. You know, they get started. He just named everything he could pray for. When he got in bed, he looked at his mom, and he said, did you notice that I left you out? <laughs> Jesus didn't leave anybody out, did he? Father, forgive them for they're ignorant. And I think they were shocked as we think about it. We are shocked today. But let me tell you, the person who was shocked more than anybody else. I think it was one of the thieves on the cross. Remember, three men were dying on crosses that day. Did you get it in the account? A thief on Jesus' right, a thief on Jesus' death, and Jesus himself. And the thief on Jesus' left. Did you get what he said? Now, people were saying, he saved others himself he cannot save. Now, we know he could have saved himself. We read in the gospel account, he could have brought 12 legions of angels to save him. You know how many angels that is? That's 72,000 angels. I think that would have handled it, don't you? 72,000 angels would have handled it. He could have called 12 legions, but he didn't to save him from the cross, from physical death. And in one sense, he could not save himself. Do you see that? Because he was in the business of saving you and saving me and to save us, he could not save himself. So in one sense, that was true. But now you have that thief on his left, the lesser thief, and he said, and by the way, this is the thief that missed Jesus. He missed Jesus. And he said, if you're the Christ, save us, save me. But he missed Jesus. How did he miss Jesus? First of all, he missed Jesus because he got caught up in the crowd psychology. You know, crowds have a psychology. When I was in Mississippi College, we were marching on our arch enemy, Millsaps College, and they'd, they'd hijack one of our freshmen, we thought, so we all lined in the streets. We were marching there. You get caught up, and all of a sudden, my goodness, you can get in trouble. There's a mob psychology you can get into. I got into it. That happens. And so you have the crowd there mocking Jesus, sneering at Jesus, cursing at Jesus, and this thief got caught up in it. They said he was laughing at him too. They're on the cross dying with him on his left side. And he said, look, if you're the Christ, save me, save us, save me. He missed Jesus because he got caught up in the crowd, and he missed Jesus because he put a test down. He put a test down. He said, if you're the Christ, save me. In other words, he said, I'll believe in you if you'll save me. Makes sense, doesn't it? I'll believe in you if you'll save me. That was a test. Man, I'm in trouble. Get me out of trouble. He had a felt need. <laughs> Jesus ministered to my felt need, and I'll believe in you. He looked upon Jesus as an administrative assistant. I want to have a meeting Thursday, 11 o'clock, take care of it. 
Jesus, I'm on this cross. If you are really God, if there is a God, then you'll certainly get me down on this cross. We have the idea he wanted God that was like a superman who was all-powerful, omnipotent, but had the brain of a peanut. You see it? (laughs) That's the kind of God he was looking for. In other words, he had the idea, I'm smarter than God. You have the idea, I'm smarter than God. Certainly God wants to bring my boyfriend back again. That's obvious. Certainly God wants to heal my daughter. Certainly God wants to get me in this school. Certainly God wants to help me out. We, we just, you know, we use God and say, boy, I want to be healthy. I want to be happy. And I'm going to believe in God. And we use God to these ends. I'm in trouble, God. Get me out of trouble and I'll believe in you. He put that test down. By the way, we've been guilty of the same thing. Oh, Lord, if you will do this or help me with this or get me out of this or guide me, I'm going to tell you, I'm going to be the best follower you've ever seen in the world. That sounds like us, doesn't it? But he he missed Jesus. He missed Jesus. He put a test down. See, we want God to be all powerful. We have the idea that we know what God ought to do. You see, his problem was He put something ahead of God. What was that? His own life. Oh, my life is more important. Man, if you'll save my life, then I believe. Anything you and I put ahead of God, even your life and my life, that becomes our God instead of the true and living God. You think, I'm smarter than God. This is what God obviously should do. My goodness, if you do this, I'll believe in you, right? Obviously. First thief missed God. The second thief found God. What was the difference? He did something that can only happen through the leadership of the Holy Spirit. He didn't use God as a means to an end. He saw God himself and believing in God and giving himself to God was an end in itself. See, we use God as God. All of this, this is a means, and then I'll have you. No. The second thief says, God, I may stay on this cross. I may stay in trouble, but I want you. See, he was interested in his soul, and more than he was his skin. And when we're interested in our skin, more than our soul, to have God is an end in and of himself. And he got that. Only Holy Spirit could help him to get that. He says, I may stay in trouble, that's okay, but I want you. You see the difference, the first thief who missed God said, save me. That's a demand, I believe. The second thief said something entirely different. He said, remember me. And that's grace and that's mercy. See the difference? See the difference? And he found Jesus. He said, remember me when you come in your, look how much he got, kingdom. That's it, isn't it? He, see, as long as we get him, he got it. He found Jesus because he was in the kingdom. What a tremendous truth. What a great contrast. First guy, miss Jesus. Lord, I believe you get me out of trouble. 
second guy said, Lord, hey, I believe in you, whether I stay in trouble or not. I just want to be in your kingdom. I want to be in your family. And then Jesus, the third one on the cross, Jesus, the son of God, said, today you'll be with me in paradise. You get the kingdom. He got it. He found Jesus, the second thief. Jesus gave it to him. And I have a feeling he was shocked. He's overwhelmed. I'm now a kingdom person. I'm outside of time. I'm outside eternity. Man, he got beyond the cross, beyond the crowd. He got all the way in the kingdom. And that is a shocking thing. Say, what about the crowd? Boy, what do you think about that crowd around Jesus? Sneering at him, mocking him, cursing him. Are you saying, well, I'm glad I don't live in a world like that today. Don't be too sure about that. Don't be too sure. Steven Spielberg, famous producer, hmm, did a little film for children called Super 8. A man went to see it saying, man, it'll be good to take my children. He sat there and counted over a hundred times before he got up and left, over a hundred times in this children's movie, Jesus Christ was used as a form of profanity. Time Magazine did a survey and said in America, for every personal pronoun you and I use, I, me, my, mine, we, every personal pronoun we use in America, Americans also use the word of profanity, a word of cursing. Isn't that something? Our society, our world, our world. Put up for me the seven deadly sins. Would you remember these seven deadlies? By the way, they were deadly sins uh, prior to the Bible. These are classical deadly sins. Wrath, lust, avarice, gluttony, sloth, envy, pride. Someone has recently written a very, very scholarly paper, scholarly paper, demonstrating that our advertising world, follow me carefully, uses these seven deadly sins to appeal to you and appeal to me to buy, to go, to sell, to buy into that which they're presenting. Isn't that something? In other words, the advertising world that these seven deadly sins are so dominating in your life and in my life, in our culture, in the crowd of America in the 21st century, my, my, my goodness, that's how they market this thing. And then we see Jesus found guilty when he's totally innocent. You say, boy, I mean, that's hot in the world. That happened in that culture. I saw Megyn Kelly interview Robert Shapiro. He was one of the defense attorneys in the O.J. Simpson trial, remember? And he's sitting there very wealthy and circumspect, and she asked him about the legitimacy of the trial because anybody who can read and write and count to 10 know that O.J. was guilty and there was overwhelming, irrefutable evidence beyond any shadow of a doubt, but he was declared to be innocent. And so she asked his defense attorney, one of them, Shapiro, how in the world, or what, how did this happen? And Shapiro said this. 
He said there is judicial justice and there is moral justice. Hello. In other words, there is courtroom justice, but it may be different from moral, actual justice. Sad, isn't it, in the 21st century? But it happened in the first century too. There was moral justice in the trial of Jesus, but judicial justice, he was guilty. True in the first century, true in the 21st century, a difference between moral justice and judicial justice. Not always, but the dichotomy is too often there. So we see our world, we are a broken world. We, is there any hope for us? We say absolutely there is. Because this same crowd that was cursing and denying and laughing and sneering at Jesus, Jesus died on the cross, then the resurrection, and then six weeks later, Peter was speaking to some of these crazy ones who said crucify him, and he called them to believe that Jesus was Messiah, and 3,000 believed. Within a month period of time, another 7,000 had believed. Now, all of a sudden, we see the early church was formed out of those who were cursing and denying and sneering. Such is the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ to take someone who is broken and put them together again, someone who is lost, and they can be found by the power of Jesus Christ. Have you ever been a store? Well, they had a, a sign up that said, if you break it, you'll pay for it. You know, it's usually a store where they got glass shelves, where they got all these little delicate things made out of all kind of glass and, and pottery and sculpture, and it's so delicate. And boy, and somebody in that store, when they see a seven-year-old come in, they just, <laughs> But there's a sign up, if you break it. You'll pay for it. A lot of people have a sign like that in their life, don't you? you know, I've been so hurt and I'm so angry and I'm so abused and I've been mistreated. And, uh, and so there's a sign up that says, man, if you break me or attack any part of me, you're going to pay for it, I'll tell you that. Know anybody like that? Oh, you're not like that, are you? Oh. But in God's store, different kind of sign. Like one store I read about, a lady went in and she was looking at all these things and she saw a beautiful little sculpture there of a, of a village in New England and she was looking at it trying to see all the work and, and the clerk came in and said, pick it up, it's all right. She said our store policy would go into effect and she pointed a sign and in this store the sign said, if you break it, tell us about it, and we'll forgive you. <laughs> Isn't that terrific? And the clerk said, we have about the same amount of breakage as we've always had. But he said, there's a new freedom in the store, and people, you know, they, they, they understand that. And, 
And this, this lady said, I've got a sign at home like that, my kids. If you break it, tell me about it, and I'll forgive you. Ladies and gentlemen, that's what's happening on this cross. <laughs> all of us, all of those who are there. That's reading these words rang true and are powerful and valid down through the centuries, all the way where you and I are gathered here in this place. Jesus says, Father, forgive them, for they're ignorant. He says, today, you'll be with me in paradise. He said, break something. Tell me about it, and I'll forgive you. You've been listening to The Winning Walk with Dr. Ed Young. It's a pleasure to have Dr. Young join us in the studio now. Dr. Young, can you talk about the freedom that comes with leaving our burdens and brokenness at the cross and following Christ? I go to the Old Testament first and think about David, who carried the burden of adultery, of murder, that year or year plus, before finally Nathan went to him, his pastor, his prophet, and presented him a little story about someone who had stolen and eaten a ewe lamb that was a pet in a family. The prophet asked, well, David, what would you do? He said, I would take that person and I would punish them. And he just just set out severe restrictions and judgment on him until Nathan, I think, with a tear in his eye, looked at the king and said, David, you're the man. You're the one who's taken the wife. You're the one who set up the, the murder of the husband. You are the one. He used the little story to illustrate the emptiness and brokenness in the life of David. And David, to his credit, repented and experienced forgiveness. Are you there today? Is there a brokenness in your life? Is there an emptiness there? Is there something that still blocks free access to the Lord? If so, confess it. Give it to Christ. And the miracle of the cross, he takes your sin and my sin upon himself. He takes the penalty, the shame that we deserve and sets us free through his shed blood. Let me ask you something. If you want to be free, really free, clean, open, transparent, sleep at night, have a relationship with anybody and everybody that's unashamed, begin at the cross. Would you right now like to confess any sin? Just tell God about it. So you say, he knows. Okay, just tell him about it. Be specific. Don't say, forgive me of my many sins. Name it. Confess it. Turn away from it. And ask Jesus Christ to come and run your life as he has cleansed your life. Dear Heavenly Father, oh, how we need to do this so many times. Lord, how so many of us carry burdens and shame and old garbage around with us that in different ways just stinks up our lives. May this be the moment of repentance, confession, and forgiveness for those who are listening, particularly that one person that may have just stumbled into this moment as they've turned on their radio. 
May this be the moment of a fresh new beginning in Jesus Christ, healing that brokenness. And where they leave this broadcast, praying that prayer, experiencing your grace, and become whole and complete again. Thank you, Lord, for your love and your grace that keeps on pouring out from that cross. We make this prayer of thanksgiving in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to The Winning Walk with Dr. Ed Young. Winning Walk is a listener-supported ministry. Your prayers and financial support allow us to bring proven truth to listeners around the world. Connect with us at winningwalk.org. That's winningwalk.org.